Couchman, it's Annie from Bellingham. I hope you're having an awesome time in Northern Colorado. It's one of my favorite places in the States. Um, I was just listening to an old episode of yours about where you got super fired up about uh, environmental racism and how um, plastic pollution isn't an ocean issue, but rather like a, a consumer issue and a corporate issue. And right now with the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matters movement, I think it's a really opportune time for us to continue evaluating what we value as a society um, and a chance for us to recognize that our consumerism puts our indigenous brothers and sisters all over the world at risk for massive amounts of air pollution, workplace hazards, unfair living conditions and wages just so we can consume products that we don't need. I just love how fired up you got about it. And I would dig to hear an episode about environmental racism. Have a great day. Not exactly throwing me a softball there, Annie, but I appreciate the question. It's very thoughtful. First and foremost, I would recommend going back and listening to episode number 133 with Stiv Wilson titled Understanding Plastic Pollution. Mr. Wilson understands plastic pollution and the life cycle of stuff better than just about anyone. And one of the points that he underscores in that podcast is that if you want to understand single-use plastic, you need to look no further than the oil and gas industry because single-use plastic is made from a compound called ethane, which is a... um, it's a compound that comes out of the ground when we frack for methane. So um, the the oil and gas industry, when they started fracking, realized that they had a, basically a free way to get the feedstock for single-use plastic, which created the boom in the plastics industry. Um, so that's episode number 133, and he takes you through that whole life cycle of stuff. Speaking more specifically to environmental racism, I think the best example of this in recent history is the killing of Eric Garner and the now famous phrase, I can't breathe. Most people think that Eric Garner died from being choked out by police. This isn't true. Eric Garner died from an asthma attack that was triggered when he was taken to the ground by the police. And that's to say nothing of police brutality in this country. I think that's a huge issue that we need to handle. Um, But it also brings on a separate set of issues, which is pollution in the most disenfranchised communities. If we want to solve the issue of environmental racism and look back 50 years from now and think, wow, isn't that so crazy that we just allowed industry to poison U.S. citizens – We need to solve the way that campaigns are financed, Um, the way that the framers set up or intended to set up the United States of America was to create a democracy that was reliant on the people alone. And right now we don't have that. It's very difficult to get a politician to do something for you unless you pay them. And politicians have become more and more reliant on corporate dollars the dollars of corporations like ExxonMobil to get elected. And then when they get into office, they will create laws that um, make 
say, environmental regulations more lax so that Exxon doesn't need to pay fines for killing people. The way that we can tackle campaign finance reform is first and foremost um, by learning who our local politicians are. Um, It is very difficult to make any kind of difference on the national level, in my opinion. So I think that what you can do today, right now, is learn who your local politicians are and what policies they stand for because um, that allows you to have a much greater influence. And a lot of policies start on the city and state level and then move out nationally. So if you look at um, an issue that has made a lot of progress over the last couple of years, like gay rights, that started on the state level and then spread out. Um, And we have a few inspiring um, initiatives in places like uh, Seattle that are enacting voucher systems that will basically match your dollar um, so if you want to donate to a politician, the um, city of Seattle would match that. So it, it helps even out the playing field so that politicians aren't as reliant on corporate dollars. If you want to understand campaign finance reform more, check out my recent episode with Lawrence Lessig. Um, but as he says, campaign finance reform is not the most important issue, but it is the first issue. So if we want to solve environmental racism, we need to solve how campaigns are funded. Uh, That's all I have to say on it for now. Hope that was helpful. This episode of the podcast is made possible by RPM Training. RPM Training is a functional fitness company based out of Northern California, and I use a lot of their workout equipments, and you can get 10% off by typing in the code name Kyle10. Um, One of the most... One of the work pieces of workout equipment that I use pretty much every day is a jump rope. Um, I find that if I just jump rope for a few minutes, like seriously, just turn on a timer, 10 minutes of jump rope, it kicks me into a higher gear for the rest of the day. RPM makes some of the best jump ropes in the whole world. They also make great training shorts, um, jammers for swimming, and uh, really awesome apparel. Head over to rpmtraining.com, type in the code name KYLE10 and get 10% off your first order. Thank you also to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these episodes. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD and they are part of my monthly box of goodies. So if you want to support this show, if you want to get more reading in your life, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies. And each month I will send you a new book that I love as well as some potent Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD. Or if you just want to order the CBD on your own, go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off your order. And finally, this episode is made possible by the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation sponsors bold, unpopular ideas. Um, Nell is Paul Newman's daughter, and she finances great initiatives all over the world, um, one of which is Save the Waves. Save the Waves Coalition protects coastal ecosystems around the world, and here is a message from their founder, or not founder, uh, executive director, Nick Strong-Svetich. Hey, Kyle, this is Nick from Save the Waves calling in here. Uh, as you know, Save the Waves is dedicated to protecting surf ecosystems around the world. And uh, we have some pretty good news from 
the place where you learned how to surf in Santa Cruz, Cowles Beach. For over 10 years, it's uh, routinely been classified as California's dirtiest beach. And thanks to our efforts, along with our partners at the city and county of Santa Cruz, we've been able to bring the bacteria and contamination levels way, way down. And this year, finally, it has been uh, taken off the list of Heal the Bay. So our efforts are actually bearing fruit. And uh, it's nice to have some good news to share every now and again amidst the horrendous news that seems to be surrounding us on a daily basis. So thank you for your support as an ambassador. And we're also really thankful for the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting us. And if people want to learn more about Save the Waves, uh, go to savethewaves.org. This episode of the podcast is with Joshua Bean. Mr. Bean paints in a style known as impressionistic realism, and he owns his own art gallery in Salida, Colorado. I've had a chance to go on a number of hikes with Josh uh, over the last couple weeks and watch him in action. Damn, this dude is good. And he's also really um, a great explainer and teacher. So for someone like me who's really never painted um, and but has always been kind of interested in it, um, he does a really good job breaking down the, the craft of um, making good art. So I hope that this uh, episode is not only entertaining but helpful for you if you're looking to get into painting. So please, without further ado, give it up for Joshua Bean. Joshua Bean in the house. I think every uh, every time I've seen you, you've had paint on your clothing. I have two types of clothing: types that have paint <laughs> on them, and then types that. Will have paint on. <laughs> That's the way it is, man. Um, I and and I also really love a certain style of clothes. I like this cool brand, so I have all these like quick dry, um, modular um, systems where you can roll up the sleeves or zip off the stuff. I you know I'm constantly out in nature painting, so I'm looking for that like high functional clothing. I don't right. mess around with lame. <laughs> well, and in Colorado too, the the temperature shifts so quickly. So, yeah. like, what's your go pack when you're going out into nature to to paint some kind of landscape? Um, it's pretty basic. Um, I mean, if I'm doing an overnight, I may bring um, it's basically the same outer wear, and then I may bring um, some long underwear, and then um, a puffy jacket, and then rain gear top and bottom, just in case. Um, especially when the monsoons start up, I mean, you can just get doused out there in a moment. Um, and you're in usually in these mountainous areas where you don't see that storm building. It's just all of a sudden on. on yeah. Right on top of you. Exactly. So, so if you are uh, mid painting and a storm comes in, what do you do? Uh, it just depends. I mean, if it's, if it's just a sprinkle, you can kind of wait it out maybe a little bit. The oil doesn't mix with the water too bad. So you can keep that going pretty good. Um, but if it's, if it becomes any more than that, um, you may have to just pack it up and bail, try to get under something for a little bit. So will you scout an area before you paint it and then come back in? How does that work when you're looking for some kind of landscape to paint? Um, if it's, well, I go both ways. Um, usually if I'm on a scouting mission, I take a smaller easel and several small paintings, you know, really micro things, little 
four by sixes, four by eights, um, six by twelves and, you know, and the like that square inch kind of size. And, um, and, you know, I'll just bang out one right after another kind of sunrise to sunset, really exploring the area, moving around quickly. Each painting will take, you know, approximately 45 minutes and you sort of move around an area. You can really, really see where you want to go. And then if you want to come back in there with bigger canvases, then you kind of know where to go when the light's going to be right, you know, what kind of, uh, terrain you're dealing with and stuff like that. Um, and then I'll sometimes just go straight out with my big easel, knowing that the place is killer and I'm going to find something. Got it. Will you take a picture prior to know what it is that you want to paint? How will you frame it up? Yeah, I, I like to do a little pre-sketch. Um, I think that's a crucial part of my sort of discipline. And I use these incremental value markers in a little box, and it's got a nice little drawing pen and stuff. You showed me. I'm yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Explain I, this. I, I can't wait till you try it, man. Um, you'll, you'll like it. Um, it it'll take – you're going to eat a cauldron of shit for a little bit, but, yeah, <laughs> as Matt Taibbi would say. Like you do. Yeah, um, but, yeah, you, you know, very quickly um, you'll start to get your feet underneath you and, you know, you tune in your hand-eye coordination. But that value sketch really helps you kind of get your head in the ball game of the painting process, and you boil down all of the visual language elements necessary to tell the story you want to tell with your with your paints. And you almost go through this order of operations exercise before you start the painting. So when the, those little pre-sketches might take 10 minutes, but I think they actually save you 45 minutes to an hour in problems that you solve in that process that would occur in the painting process. So yeah. on a pre-sketch, is that on a different canvas than the one that you will be painting afterwards? It's just on regular little paper. It's on paper. regular paper. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that little cardstock paper that I use, it's it's basically just cardstock note cards that you get from, you know, 100 for for Got it. So it's a real rough sketch of what the what you're going to do afterwards. Exactly. Just to be able to get the markers of what it is that you want to include in that painting. Yep, and it's a full value sketch. So the incremental value markers are crucial. They sort of put your head in the ball game of identifying the different value relationships. And I know that your audience is, is a lot of surfers and hunters and stuff, but it, it would really be a great practice to do out there while you're sitting in your stand, you know, and, and, and you're, you, know, you might be bored out of your mind. You might not be. Some people just love it out there just in that silence. But um, I know I used to hunt and I'd kind of get bored. And, and if you had a little sketch box, I mean, you could just sit out there and knock out little sketches of looking down from your stand, you know, at the trees and different foliage and, you know. Right. Um, so the other day I was in your gallery and you were showing me those different value markers. Yeah. And it was a real cool experience to see how you will see, um, you know, a, a wall and different details on that wall in, um, I almost want to say like a much more literate way than I do but through the the way that you were explaining the different shades that I was missing. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about, about that, you know, you were in the way that you were explaining it to me the other day. Oh yeah, you bet. Um, so it's a visual language that we're basically speaking. So that was the perfect word to use in, in that literacy. Um, and you start to realize as you look around, um, 
we a lot of us take advantage of the fact or, or take for granted um, that that what we're seeing is is a breakdown of three dimensional information and then it's translated into your brain as 3d information so it's different it's it, the, it's this language that you're going to speak on a two-dimensional canvas that is going to convey that pictorial statement and it gets it gets a little in the weeds but it's basically four different visual language elements that relate to each other on that two-dimensional surface and the main one in the first one in, in my discussions in my book is value and value is the relative light and darkness of the different materials in your scene and then you have um, the shape of those lights and darks um, like the like the shape of the shadow side of the tree or a rock or you know um, the bank on the side of a river might be casting a shadow shape that's that's very descriptive and that shape is another part of is another element in the language. So now we have value and shape, and those two integrated together are largely responsible for most of your compositional motifs. And um, how you relate value and shape is is really strongly influencing how what what kind of pictorial statement you're going to make. And then uh, you get into more of the artistic and poetic um, elements, and I think those are the edges. And that's the transitions from one shape to another. Got it. Um, and then, and then we talked about intangible edges versus tangible edges, and that's pretty esoteric, but it's pretty fun. Um, the way you look around the room and you can see various overlaps in your scene, whatever scene you're in, you can sort of just look around the room and start to see like a chair overlapping the table is overlapping the wall and there's a window looking out that's overlapping um, the distant view out there. So there's all these overlapped edges and in that, um, in those edge relationships, you can see very descriptive um, nature of the material that that edge is representing. So if it's a hard edge, it must be um, a semi-solid material. Um, if it's a grassy sort of furry edge or, you know, you might be looking at um, a grassy over, overlap of some other entity or, um, you know, just it, there's there's a million different sort of tangible edges. And then the, the intangible edges, I think these get into the hyper poetry of painting where the intangible edges are more like the edges that you experience as the view, as as the artist and that's sort of um what you decide to focus on in a scene um and and how the other relationships in the scene the edges the overlapping edges relate to that focal point so it's the how you see things in your peripheral vision um and what you choose to focus on you can paint in hyper sort of almost photorealism and then leave the rest of it in this sort of um, less rendered manner, and it gives you this essence of of, of that peripheral sort of intangible edge. Um, so that's some fun kind of stuff. And then there's sort of atmospheric stuff you can do, pushing um, both value and edges in things that are more distant, softening those edges and stuff, so you can really having a, a 3D effect just based on the edge poetry. Right. So so in that little kit that you gave me, there were a few different shades of pencil that, that came with it. Yeah. So 
how would I apply those different um, shades when when you know trying to create some different kind of edge? Where like if so, if there was a tangible edge, would I be using a more solid hard color there? It would just be the um, really uh, the the hardness or softness of the edge has um, a ton to do with the actual material that that is creating the edge. But also the value relationship of that material that's that's creating the edge, and what it's in front of. So if it's a dark um, object in front of something that's in shadow, then that edge may appear softer to the human eye or to the perceptive perception of the viewer um, than it actually is. Um, so there's so there's some sort of relationship with that. Um, so with those value incremental markers, um, there's a there's a sort of a step by step that I go through, and you you first start by you know just boxing up on the on the drawing page. You sort of make a box in the aspect ratio of the size of canvas that you're going to be working on. And and if you were just drawing for yourself, you could just say, well, this looks like a vertical composition, and sort of arbitrarily draw any box. But the box part of that exercise is really important because it changes your mindset from just sort of the notion of just doodling on the page to actually designing that box and how you're going to place your subject matter in that constraints of that box. Got so, it. So, so uh, just to clarify, are you drawing a box inside of the page that you are going to paint on? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the first step, and it and it it's game changer, and you'll see why as soon as you do it, you're like, oh, now I got something that I'm working on here, you know. So you're not going to draw anything outside of that box, or will you? You may overshoot some of the lines um, within that box as they sort of meet up with the edges and constraints of that box, and you may decide that you have painted something too big and you want to expand upon your box. That's also all possible. And by making that box in sort of the center of your page, you give yourself leeway to do just that. Got it. Okay. It really is a game changer little bit of information there that sort of allows you to, you know, adjust things and and everything's very modular in that process. And so the next thing you're going to do is assess the lighting. Um, The lighting has so much to do with how your value relationships are working out on the canvas and that's where we're going to get into those incremental value markers um and so you're so you're looking at your scene and you're you know you're assessing the relationship of your lights and shadows your light family and your shadow family a lot of times you'll have um things um in the shadow side of things that have more in common in terms of the value with other shadow things than the lit side of itself. So like the shadow side of a tree may look closer in color and value to a shadow side of a rock than the lit side of the tree itself. So that relationship of value changes a lot, um, you know, material to material and, um, distant. Right. Um, so, so when you're going out to, to paint a landscape, do you still draw that box first? I do. Okay. That's my first step. And, and I do it in the aspect ratio of the canvas I intend to paint on. So I'm really studying, um, in this pre-sketch for that canvas. If you did not have a canvas, you know, you were just out there drawing, say that's when you can just 
you know, kind of create any size box you want and see if that works out. Um, so you assess that lighting and then you're starting to just identify values out there in your scene. Okay. And so the shadow of that rock looks like the shadow of that tree. So I'm going to use the same, the same, uh, pen or, or watercolor or whatever you're using. Exactly. For those two, uh, for those two shapes. Yeah. Okay. And, and it might be, um, a lot of times with like trees and rocks and stuff, the, the, the shadow family is somewhere around in the 60% range. The light, um, side of that rock is going to be in the 20% range. So you have a, a 20, um, you have a 30% range of value that describes the contrast of that particular object. And when you're using, let's say a set of pencils, are you going from zero, which would be the lightest pencil to a hundred, which would be the darkest? Yep. Got and it. those, yeah, if you were doing a pencil, you, you know, you can create really nice gradations of value. With the markers, you you have increments in ten percent available from the from the factory. I use just um, I use twenty percent, forty, sixty, eighty, and black. And those spaces um, give you a little bit more sort of constraints. Remember, we were talking about um, constraints on your creative process when you sort of constrain yourself to a limited amount of values to work with you add to your creative level of problem solving and things like yeah. that. So I, that was a, a real cool concept for me to, to chew on, which is that the more constraints you put on yourself, the more creative you can be. And I've found that in, in my own life. If there is an endless amount of choices that I have, there's this kind of analysis paralysis that occurs and you don't really know what step to take. But yeah. if you, put a certain amount of constraints on whatever your creative endeavor is, all of a sudden um, a lot blossoms out of that. Definitely. Your first move becomes a little bit more... It's counterintuitive. Right? It's counterintuitive. Yeah. But man, I run into a lot of people who say, like, I just don't know what to do. Like, on, Whether it be on an artistic level or just on a life level, like they're really paralyzed by choice. Yeah. But you... I mean, I was... I was had a funny conversation just the other day. I was uh, floating down the river with my buddy, and we started. We yawned at the same time, and we're like, "How how many people have studied yawning? Like you could study yawning for a lifetime. Like oh, that man. is just one example of something that you could really dive into and become the the." best yawner in the whole world no right? doubt. but like, who's done that study how the how they're contagious and how they sort of spread across a room you know um anyway yeah so, that's fine so all right so we're you're assessing different values on it okay yep. um and and the value markers give you this great insight into assessing those values at first it's that it's hard to kind of figure them out um but they do really make sense after just a little while working with them um, but I can look out at this scene that we're looking at. We're, we're looking at this beautiful Arkansas River from Eric's place here that we're staying at. And um, and I can, you know, look out into that scene and just tell you what every single value is in that scene. And nothing is beyond the capabilities of what, what we can do with those markers, right? Everything you can see there is from 10% to black. Um, so So it's very right. doable. This would be a doable scene. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, if you're painting a sunset, those kind of become pretty hard with the value markers because right. so, so much happens with color. Um, Th this is a good example though. So we're looking at a river 
and behind it is a mountain range. And there's a little uh, grassy knoll in front of the river. So once you create that box and you assess your value range, where what would you start to paint first in this scene? The first thing that you do with the with the pre sketches um, after you draw the box is assess the the lighting and the horizon line. The horizon line is going to stem from your eye level, and it's an imaginary line that extends out into infinity at that eye level spot. And all other horizontal entities in nature um, will um, adjust how they look based on your eye level. And so the river is the same eye level, or it's 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 not the same eye level, but it's it's level. It's a level plane. Um, so the river's uh, shape relates to your eye level and the horizon line. Um, any uh, parallel lines in nature. Um, any of any parallel lines will converge at some vanishing point as as you look off into the distance of their uh, parallelism um, but horizontal parallel lines will all um, converge on the horizon line which is a really interesting sort of science of seeing um, truth about about your horizon line and and the true horizontal nature and the correlation of other horizontal things. Um, so you're looking for that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's really important to just put in the horizon line at first. Um, and then, uh, and then you draw in all of the overlapping shapes of things. And that's the sort of, I guess it'd be the fourth step. And so in this case, um, you're going to draw the overlap of like, if you're going to include like the couch in the living room here, you would draw this overlapping, um, chair, you know, et cetera, in the room. And then you'd overlap, uh, the, the building, um, window in front of the landscape. You would draw the distant mountain sort of profile. You're thinking in terms of silhouettes. Um, so the silhouette of that tree and the silhouette of that. Um, and then once you get the silhouettes, then you can break into the light and shadow patterns within those silhouette patterns. Right. Okay, so you're you're basically getting the big shapes out there first. Hundred percent. That's exactly what you're doing. Um, good synapses there, and then uh, yeah, and then um, from then on, you just dive dive right into the markers. And a really good way to ease into the markers is look at the scene and figure out what your lightest light is. Um, in this case, I would argue that the sky back there is the lightest light, um, and uh, so that's going to be the white of the paper. Then. Every single thing else in the whole painting can be um, colored over, or, or the little drawing can be cover, covered over in the 20% marker because everything is darker than that sky. So that's a good way to sort of ease into these markers, right? And then you're looking at um, what's, what's left in terms of the value. This is a subtractive approach. And so now that you're going to go to the 40%, so now you're going to leave everything that's 20%, which would, I would argue is this field of grass out here, the river, um, the rest of the sky that's, um, that's not that white canvas. Um, and you're going to hit 40% on every single thing else. So you subtract off that 40%, um, marker from your, from your, um, from stuff that's going to go to, to 40 and beyond. And then you're looking for, uh, 20, 40, um, and you're going to go to 60 and you're going to leave everything 60. So 
in this scenario, I would start to shadow in the, the shadow side of the trees, perhaps, perhaps the uh, trees and shadow side of things up on that distant rock. Um, yes. Wow. All right. And yeah. then, and then, you just go then, to eighty percent, just eighty percent, and and fill all the detail in. Fill all the detail in. Typically, eighty percent um, and or, or black, um, and your lightest light are going to be the smallest amount of real real estate of value on your canvas. So that makes sense. Yeah, you're, you'll be barely using any of those. You'll the forty and sixty percent kind of kind of become your workhorse markers. One. Uh, one thing that you've brought up to me a couple times um, is really this idea that you don't need to be a genius or savant to make a living at art, that there is a real um, craft that you can apply to this. Um, and there are ways to, to actually make it happen. And, and you've, you seem very um, ardent in your pursuit to demystify um, becoming a painter um, can you tell me a little bit about that um, that position that you take on on being an artist? Oh, you bet. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's a wonderful, um, quite profound life path um, to choose um, painting, um, and I feel like it's it's open to more than people that that just have drawn and painted their whole lives and, you know, kind of have this, um, internal compass to, to be an artist. Um, I, I really feel like it's, it can be learned. Um, and then I've kind of gone about my career in a, in a slightly different path that, um, and, and, and I'm not the first to do it, but I definitely have popularized it a great deal and it's opening up your own studio gallery and then um i didn't realize how this was going to work exactly when i first started i was teaching art to inmates up the road at the bv correctional complex oh wow when i first moved back to colorado from the la area and um and was teaching inmates and stuff and i was painting you know as a side hustle and i was just you know painting voraciously as i do and um really wanting to make it and, you know, exploring the options of, of showing my work in galleries and stuff like that. And I quickly realized, um, that the galleries, the gallery system has a major catch 22 for emerging artists. And that is that they essentially double the price that you need to get for, for the, the painting and the frame and stuff like that. So you go to the gallery and and you know they're they basically take fifty percent off the sale price, and that's that puts the artist in this really um, tricky conundrum of you know needing to make enough to pay for the frame and the effort, and still being a low enough price to appeal to a market that that doesn't know who you are. You know, right. the more well known you are, the higher prices can go, the demand can go up, you know, staggeringly high, and. Um, so the, the emerging artist is in this really, um, tricky situation of, of needing to paint a ton of paintings while not being, um, not selling enough to, to justify that, to get your feet underneath right. you, you know? Um, and so it's a, it's a trick. Um, and I, w- I was, 
embedded in that scenario. And I was just um, so frustrated and I was still teaching at the prison, painting, you know, practically full time on the side. And our living room was just filling up with paintings. It was almost like a hoarder's house with trails going through our house, you know. And, um, and, and I was making enough at the prison where I could put a little bit of money away each month. And so we finally ended up in this position where there was a place that opened up downtown in our little touristy mountain town. And, um, we decided to pull the trigger on opening up our own space. And, um, I had just taken a workshop with, um, one of, one of my artistic painting heroes, Gerald Murfeld over in Westcliff. And he had his own gallery and had bought it back in you know, back in the day when he was just moving to Colorado. Um, and now he's in his eighties, you know, he's a real mentor and a, and a, a phenomenal painter, but, uh, he had his own gallery and kind of, you know, just, just kind of mentored me a little bit on how that was going to work. And, um, and I followed suit, did it. And after we opened, we sold a painting every single day for like three months straight. Wow. And it was, um, it was a great relief to just see that it would work. Um, granted I had my prices fairly low. I was still, you know, at, at a spot where I didn't know where that price was going to end up. And, and I think that's, that is part of the key of, of making a living at this by having your own studio gallery. You have to go into it without your, without the, ego getting involved with with your pricing structure you have to be very open to my what what is my number based on my output my quality my location um the foot traffic demographic of my location what are they willing to buy um and then you you find out really quick if you're too high you're sitting on work too long and um it's it's very unmotivating to look at walls that are busting at the seams and you haven't sold anything in a while. So how much, when you just started, how much were you selling those paintings for? Um, I would do basically like a six by eight for about 50 bucks. And, um, and then I was doing my own frames. So I built, um, I would get like, you know, basic like floor molding from home Depot. And then I would route a little rabbit into it. And, you know, just kind of really homemade looking frames and stuff. So, you know, but for me, like that was a major, I mean, that was like a hour, hour and a half endeavor, um, probably 45 minutes on the frame. So you're looking at a, you know, pretty decent wage. It was like 12 to 14 an hour. And that was about what I was making at the prison. So I was kind of just coming in a little bit low to see where, see where my number was, just not knowing what the market in Salida would bear. And then we just started selling one a day and, or, you know, sometimes two or three a day. And then a little, little space, maybe Monday and Tuesday, we didn't sell anything, start up again Wednesday and sell, you know, a, a painting a day on average or whatever. And it was just, um, I realized like, okay, so you can have your prices too low. And then that's also a problem. Right. <laughs> um, so, you, you, but that, but I realized really fast, and this is where it's at is when you're chasing these empty walls, it's so motivating. You are so 
excited about going out and doing another painting to fill that little space that, that just, yeah, away, just you know? the, the inspiration factor of finishing a product and having it sell and getting it out there. It can be really powerful. A lot right. of writers talk about the, um, importance of short assignments yeah. and finishing a story and selling that story and then moving on to the next one. Because for a lot of writers, it's really easy to drown in trying to write a fucking book and then just getting halfway through and never finishing. That's a perfect analogy. And that fear of failure is, is absolutely, it's, it's that analysis paralysis in another way. Um, that, that thing keeps people from doing stuff and it's, it's just terrible. Yeah. Um, Well, the, well, the conversation inside your head around whether or not you're good enough becomes magnified if you're not selling stuff. De- oh, definitely, man. Right. So, yeah. but, but if you're selling stuff and you're like, you're chasing that empty wall, you don't have nearly as much time to devote that kind of real estate to that self doubt. Right. Oh man. That's so well said. Um, that is exactly it. And, and also you start caring a lot less about, you know, what oil painters of America is doing and what, you know, this artist is doing and that artist is doing because, you're in your own little fire. Like it's, you're, you're, you're making it happen. You're making yeah. it happen. It's, 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 it's quite profound and amazing. And you know, you're hearing grumbling and this and that on the, on the interwebs and the social medias and stuff. And yeah, the art markets, this and that. And, and, oh man, I'm just like, it's people love art. Trust me. You just have to find what your number is and you have to be able to deliver your stuff to market and, I argue the best way to do it is in one of these small mountain towns right now or or wherever you want to paint, wherever you love the landscape, go figure out how to open up your own studio space with some foot traffic down there. Um, It just opens up so many possibilities for your, for your livelihood. And you don't have to man that thing every second of every day. Like some people might think, Oh, if I have my business downtown, I'm going to have to, honestly, when you're there, you're going to sell paintings. And when you're not there, you're going to miss sales straight up. That's, I mean, you're going to have to deal with that very fact. And you may want to put in the time in the studio when you have the best chances at the weekends and stuff, when the foot traffic's a little higher. Um, but in general, um, you know, you're, you have to also go out and be inspired. And so you have to go on camping trips and we just close up the gallery. It's just, <laughs> you're going to miss me sometimes, you know? Um, but I have to, I have to be out there and exploring and, and seeing and painting and stuff. So um, when people, when someone comes up to you and says, what kind of painter are you? Uh, what do you say? Um, I say, uh, that I work in a style known as impressionistic realism. And so what I'm trying to do with my work is have a, have a finish that from a little bit of a distance, you know, five to 10 feet or so, you know, you look, it it feels like you're looking out of a window. It's that sort of hyper real. Um, and then when you get up close to the painting, it breaks down into one brush stroke after another, and you can clearly see the mechanics of the actual inner workings and gears of the painting. Um, I love that kind of style. I feel like it engages the viewer in a way that you're not, you and the viewer, whether or not they 
know it are not as interested in detail as they think they are. They're interested in understanding and reading the lighting and form of a scene more than they're interested in how many branches are on a tree or cracks in the rock or, you know, they're, they're more interested in how, how the painting makes them feel. Um, and so this, this style of painting I feel like is, is both fast, fun, and it dances with the viewer in this wonderfully magic way where it's not finished out. I'm not beating you over the head with every single leaf on the tree and, you know, um, every, every blade of grass, you know, it's sort of, I give you the cliff notes of a scene and then you using your visual vocabulary, life experience, personal intelligence and memory to build out that scene. Mm. Will you paint one object or landscape many times? I will. Yeah. I've, I go back to the same spots you know, based on the season, based on the time of day. Um, I love that. Um, and Monet used to do that too. He'd go out to those haystacks or he'd go to the Notre Dame. Um, and, and these were, you know, the real spearheads of this painting on location thing. And, um, and, and as a painter now that primarily paints on location, I can just see why they would do that. Um, you wake up in the morning and you're excited about a subject matter. Like today I wanted to go paint a cascade and I know of many in the Valley. And so it's almost like you're sitting in your studio. You're like, okay, which, which one is going to be going right now? That's going to be good. Like, you know, I can go up there and just kind of set up in my normal spot. I love, um, and it's, it's ever changing as well. So it's not always like you can go back to that spot exactly. But, um, a lot of times, you know, kind of, boiling down a time of year, water flow. Um, I feel like the river, uh, when it starts coming up with this peak runoff, I think it's a little bit less appealing to, um, to paint at high runoff. When the water starts to come down again, you got more structure along the banks and that, you know, that, that kind of thing, which I enjoy painting more. Um, so it just depends on, uh, different seasons, different times of day, but I will often go back to the same spot, paint even very similar or the same composition. Um, it's good to look back at your body work too, and see the times that you've painted that. And you can sort of gauge your own stylistic nuances and changes and, you know, you mentioned working, uh, in a prison. What was that like? (laughs) I mean, it was, it was tough, man. I, I won't lie. I, I did. It was very rewarding, um, in that there were guys in there that were super talented. And of course, um, they were mostly interested in, you know, the, the tattoos and, you know, um, all, all different, you know, kinds and styles of tattoos, some very racist and, and very gang related and stuff, but they're, <laughs> that swastika they, is beautiful, they, sir. I mean, they would they, literally the composition draw on that. They would it's, literally draw some beautiful swastikas, man. Um, and, and all tripped out and like these, you know, like sacred geometry swastikas. And stuff. It's oh so God. weird. Um, you, you get everything. Um, it, but it's, but by far and large, um, the guys, I, I got to handpick the guys that I was teaching and it was a 
program that was real progressive back then. It was sort of a um, we we had a governor in Colorado that was really trying to reduce recidivism and figure out a way to sort of um, rehumanize a lot of these folks. And um, you know, there it's that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps and they hand you a blown out left flip flop thing. You know, it's, it's, I mean, these guys just been dealt a a crap ass hand in life. And, um, and it's quite frankly, they, they didn't play those cards very well. Um, and in some cases they are in there for stuff that I could be in there for. I mean, um, you know, yeah, you're doing drugs in the wrong neighborhood. Exactly. I mean, some one guy I had was, um, I think he he was a big drug bust with mushrooms, and it was that was a heartbreak. You know, I mean, most of my peers have all done mushrooms, and we could easily, uh, you know, be in there doing five, ten years. It's just ridiculous, nonviolent drug offenses and stuff. Um, and then I had a, a couple of guys that were in there for some pretty serious crimes. Um, but most of them were on the short list. They were all like three years out or less. Um, that was one of my stipulations to teach. Um, I was teaching through the Colorado Mountain College. So it was a college level art class that I was working with them on. So they got a few little college credits from that and stuff. And cool. I, I don't know to what degree that you know, credential stuff helps them when they get out. But what really I thought was one of the coolest things to see was um, I, I, I needed to bridge the gap from where they were artistically, which was tattoos and, um, you know, real line art kind of based illustrations, um, some, some dark stuff and some fantasy stuff, but very, very little drawing from life. Um, the stuff they really need to kind of take their artistic eyes and, and skills to a higher level. So what I did was I, um, started showing them painters that could sort of bridge that gap for me. And I showed them like Frank Frazetta and these, the, you know, John Berkey and these, these old illustrators that would do a lot of painting, but they were doing, you know, science fiction, fantasy stuff that they really got a kick out of. Um, it's, but they really, really gravitated towards, uh, Frazetta, of course. And Frazetta, what did, and what kind of painting did Frazetta do? Frazetta is the, um, Conan guy and he would do those really voluptuous ladies and, and at the, you know, front of a throne with some, you know, crazy, um, authoritarian ruler in the background, right. <laughs> whatever giant ax, um, that kind of thing. Um, but what it what was cool was that the inmates um, loved that stuff. And then I could, from that painting, at that high level of painting, I could then start to show them artists like John Singer Sargent and, you know, the contemporary painter Richard Schmidt and these really great representational painters out there that were doing really high um, paintings from life. And then we would set up like one of, one of the guys as a model and we would all draw um, that fella and, you know, we kind of rotate around the room doing that. Oh, that's cool. So you'd, you'd have one inmate stand up there and have everyone else draw him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we were able to do some life drawing in there and, and now I get, um, you know, every once in a while I get a Facebook request from one of those guys that got out and, and he's doing well. Um, you know, a lot of them fall back into tattoos or fall back into, you know, whatever mainstream job, but, 
um, I still really try to hold on to that, you know, um, and push them whenever they, they contact me to get their easel back out, man, just get out there and get outside and take a stab at this. It's, it's very soul enriching, you know? Yeah. And, and what, what you're doing painting natural landscapes is such a sneaky way to get people into the outdoors. <laughs> no doubt. Oh, that's a good way to say it. Um, it is. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it takes a sec to kind of, to fall in love with it. Um, and you have to sort of, um, carve out a little spot of time that is longer than most, you know, expenditures of time in your life. So that alone is a little problematic at first. Um, but I encourage people to just do it. And, and after like the 10th time, you'll start to fight for that little slot of time and you won't let anybody else get into there. You know, you, you, you really, um, you make that time out. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful side hustle for, you know, and almost every artist I know that's made a living at this has started out with a little side hustle kind of thing with it. And, you know, if you're, if you're just, you know, traveling and surfing and, or, um, traveling and, and, or, you know, any type of, um, travel, if you can have a little sketch kit with you, um, you know, you're and and you have some aptitude at all, you're never going to starve. I mean, you can be in any situation, any country in any language. And if you knock something out of the park, you're going to be able to get some food. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, wow. um, it's, it's really profound that way. You might not be crushing it and drop, you know, making 300 grand a year or whatever, but you know, like you're not going to starve and you can for sure, um, you know, make a lot of interesting connections and friends through this avenue in addition to your other um, outdoor pursuits. When did you start painting? I started really late in life. Um, I was started at the age of 29. Wow. And I, So you say you joined the Army right out of high school, is that right? Yep, right out of high school, went in the Army, stationed in Germany for a couple of years. Um, it, was, it, it was 92 to 95, so it was in between um, the Saudi Arabia stuff and um, Bosnia and Macedonia, the peacekeeping huh. over there. At the time, and um, bet you wish you would have had a sketchboard there. Uh, I did draw a lot, but oh, I did. didn't draw from life. I didn't. I should have been, you know. I think my about that with my stuff. early travels to now pursuing writing. Yeah, I just think, ah, oh, there's so many missed experiences. Totally, all of the, you know, this trip that just turned into a blur. That if I would have been looking at it from a journalistic eye, would have saved so many more details, and thus experienced it more deeply. Yeah. But it took that to get where you are to realize that. Yeah. Know, that was, it's all, yeah, it's, yeah, it, there are no mistakes. No, no regrets spelled, spelled with an A. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see, have you ever seen those tattoos? Uh -uh. <laughs> no regrets. Oh, right. Spelled wrong. <laughs> so, so at 29, that was when you first, um, started painting. Yeah. I'd painted a little bit in college, but I didn't, I was way more into sculpture and, uh, drawing and, uh, I was gearing my portfolio, um, to up to a sort of level that would look good for studio animation studios and stuff in, in the LA area, which I then moved after college out to, um, Huntington beach and kind of got my foot in the animation world and, um, pursued that for about five years, worked in video games 
worked for projects for Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. And um, it, this was all through this company that now is taking off. And it's so fun to see. I'm really still tight with the um, the creator over there at um, Titmouse Animation. Mm-hmm. And they're doing stuff for Netflix now for Duncan Trussell. Oh, and is, stuff. is is Duncan Trussell's new new uh, series yeah. is on Titmouse? Yeah, I remember yeah, him talking exactly. about that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I used to work for that studio, and we did projects, overflow projects from Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. So it was a great experience. And um, the the creator over there, Chris Pernowski, um, took me under his wing when I first got there. That was my first sort of animation gig. And um, he was sort of mentored me in an internship for about six months and then hired me on. So that was a really cool experience. Meanwhile, I was waiting tables, you know, just making ends meet. It was, it was a side um, hustle once again that turned into a, a really good gig. And I, I, I liked it, but then I got into painting and I was like, oh, this is what I was born to do. I got into painting after I started working in the um, video game industry as an animator, 3d animator. And, um, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed it, but it was so computer intensive. Right. And it was a lot just, of time looking at the screen. Oh man. I could feel my posture, you know, <laughs> you going day by day, to, yeah. just curling up. <laughs> on Compact yeah. Day by day. Um, and I was trying to go surfing in the mornings too, before work. And, um, well, you know, it's a real big issue, um, today with, so many people looking at computers, um, their eyes are getting worse and optometrists will recommend that people go outside and look at landscapes to help their eyes. I could see it. I think it's real healthy. I get it. I can see it. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean that. (laughs) It happens. Um, but yeah, it's, it, you're constantly bouncing your visual sort of focus from, distant to close. And I think that's supposed to be an exercise to enhance your vision. It's one of them, right? You're, you, you look from distance to close, just distance to close. Um, but yeah, your eyes will be really tired after doing that too, for a couple hours. And especially if you're doing a backpacking trip where you're just doing one painting after another, wow. Those are, your eyes get really tired at the end of the day. I will wear some polarized sunglass you know, neutral gray lenses when I paint for that reason. It really helps with the glare and stuff. I bet. Um, the other night we had dinner with a buddy of yours who was another painter. And one thing that I've noticed as well is that you, you really do not have a scarcity mindset when it comes to painting. The way that you're explaining it is like, hey, if you have a bar in town, it's it's great to have another bar next door. Um, it seems like you've adopted this kind of inclusive mentality with other artists moving in and you collaborate with them. Oh man, I, I really appreciate you picking up on that. That's such a part of my being. I feel like if we're not sharing our successes and, sh- and letting other uh, of our fellow humans know how this works, um, it, it dishonors the divinity of life. I mean, it really does. Um, you, you must share, um, and we must treat each other like we would want to be treated. I mean, that's like the bottom golden rule. It's just, and it's pervasive and and it just would help. Yeah, it, it would. And it's also intelligent from a somewhat selfish place because the, the cooler you are to other people, the cooler they're going to be to you. I look at people who have that scarcity mindset and you know, that doesn't mean you give away all of your possessions and you're not smart with 
with your own stuff, but to come at life without a generous outlook is just stupid because then people aren't going to want to include you in right. stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, satisfaction comes from generosity, right? It feels just as good to, and many times better to give a gift than it does to receive a gift. Yeah, so when absolutely. you look back on your, your whole life and what really mattered, it is that, that air of, I think abundance and you can, you can adopt it at any moment and it's, um, it's powerful what can happen in your life as soon as you do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just, I I feel like the universe gets behind what you're doing Yeah, in a way that is absolutely profound. Um, you'll start like, I can't tell you how many times it, it, and it's been at least a half a dozen, um, where, we were kind of just getting started in our gallery and, um, and it, you know, it's in a slower time of year and, you know, we'll be, um, kind of right at the end of the month and, um, and not have a certain amount of our mortgage or whatever. And I'll be damned if we don't sell a painting that is within $10 of the amount that we needed, you know? It's just kind of that kind of stuff um, just constantly happens. And um, I I mean, I don't know any other way to look at it, but just fist bump the universe. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) um, It's, it's one of those things, but I, but I, but I really honor every breath that I'm able to take in this vehicle. Right. It's, it's just such a profound experience and, um, to take it all and, and be like, Oh, this is, this is my information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, same goes with the, with the, um, painting expertise, you know, people that sort of hold on to a technique cause they are afraid another painter is going to run away with it. Or, you know, it's, it's just forget all that, man, just paint with your soul and, and it all starts to just work. You know? Yeah. There's a martial artist named Marcelo Garcia who um, is very well known. And before tournaments, he would put up videos of himself practicing. And people thought that that was just crazy because he would he was giving his opponents his secrets, right? But then the way that he put it is, if they are looking at my videos, they are playing my game. And I will always be better at my game than um, they will. Yeah. Whoa. And they're looking at their video at your video because they are self-doubting yeah which this guy who also used to take naps at tournaments between his matches just to fuck with people oh man (laughs) oh let's go see what uh garcia is looking like he's passed out catching flies (laughs) oh man wakes up and stomps people oh man that's yeah do you so when you really pursued this life of for lack of better words, heart and passion. Did you have any kind of like visualization of, you know, being at this point that you are now, or did you have any kind of conversations in your mind around, um, you know, self-worth or what you feel that you deserve? Um, I say that because I, I think that it is a, a, a real, there's a real pernicious, aspect to American culture, which is that 
oh, self-loathing, that there is some kind of attribute to self-loathing and that, you know, you, you deserve to suffer in one way or another and just working hard and grinding it out till the end is really a part of our cultural milieu in a way that I think creates a lot of unnecessary suffering. Um, and it's a conversation that that I think a lot of successful artists need to get over. Um, you know, realizing that there's just a lot of wasted brain power in that self-loathing or not feeling like you deserve it or just blah blah blah. Did you did you have any of that or any kind of mental tricks that you used to to get through it? Hmm. Um. I I don't know if I um had. A sort of um, a feeling where um, I, I felt like I deserved um, anything, and at the same coin, I always feel it's it's not it's not well to um, play the victim either. Um, like I feel like you need to wake up and you need to make stuff happen, and. Um, and so it, it, for me, it's just been a lot of hard work and, and, um, and, you know, um, I would say, you know, some, some amount of dumb luck. Um, but the, the dumb luck is, is comes from the work too. Right. So it's, it's not exactly totally a divorced, um, kind of idea there, but, um, yeah, I never, I never felt like I deserved it or anything. And in, and in fact, sometimes I shake my head at, at, you know, what I have created and I, and I can't, um, believe that I deserve it, but, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's pretty neat. Um, I, I definitely wanted to just always, um, share this love of being outdoors and the love of art with people. And, and I feel like, um, growing up in Colorado, I never once in my whole young life saw someone out painting and I used to be in boy scouts, climbing 14ers, you know, going out, you know, and, and hiking around places all the time. I never once saw a, a painter, you know, painting on location out there. Um, and so when I got into painting, I was painting mainly, mainly, um, figure and portrait. And I thought maybe I'd go down that road and kind of get into fine art through figure and portrait. I really enjoyed that in college and stuff. And, um, I got a portable easel. And from that time I started taking my, my stuff just outside, um, via one of my instructors at the little atelier school I was taking classes at. And, um, and, and he asked me if I wanted to go painting at the coast. And I was like, Whoa, I, it never registered actually to me that you could take your easel outside, even though I'd been through college and I did the art history stuff. And I know that Monet painted outside and stuff. It just didn't, something didn't click for me until I actually was invited to go on that trip. And then from that day forward, I was like, Whoa, this was life changing. And I completely sucked at it. Um, uh, that first painting I still have in my, teaching box. Cause I like to show beginner painters that like, yeah, how bad it was, man. Um, I think that's important. You can't, you can't have that fear of failure. You have to know 
straightforward right off the get-go that you're going to eat shit like this is how it's going to be it's like the first time you if you ever dropped in on a skateboard and a, yeah right, yeah it's like, you, you know shit. that first time like you you don't know what I've, it's going to feel I've like quite one, until you do it done that once or twice yeah yeah it's it's one of those so you know but the thing is 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 very short in a very short amount of time i'd say within 10 paintings of going out and painting small you know six by eight five by seven eight by 10, maybe max. Um, that way you don't feel like you're really involving yourself in this endeavor. That's going to take three or four hours. You know, it's going to be short. You might even set a timer to kind of even set a little bit more urgency to Mm -hmm. your working pattern, especially at the beginning. And then at the end of that 30 minutes, you just toss that painting aside, knowing that it isn't worth anything. And then start it again from that same perspective, even the same painting, and you will do that second one better, you know? Right. Um, so just just doing a few exercises like that, I really go through those exercises in my book. I think that's a crucial part of it. What's your book called? Uh, Learn to See, Learn to Paint. Nice. And it's the a foundation in visual language through oil painting. It's the subtitle. It's, it, it's really interesting. Even for the non-painter, um, you'll get a ton out of it. It's... Uh, it's the sort of science of observation and translating the four dimensional space time around you to that two dimensional surface. And, um, the language that really is, is, is that, you know, does that best. What are some of the most wild things you've seen outside while painting? I've seen some good stuff. Um, you know, from, from just, you know, whales out at, you know, painting in Maui. Um, I've seen, I thought you were going to say in Colorado. Yeah, I, no. like, Woo. Uh, no, I, I love traveling <laughs> and painting. with you. Nice. Yeah, no. <laughs> some whales jumping over mountains. Um, but yeah, I've seen, um, I've seen pretty much all North American wildlife. Um, I've seen, even I was painting at a beaver pond one time and the beaver was swimming underneath the water where I was, you know, where I was kind of doing a study of subsurface structure and fallen logs and stuff in it. And this beaver's working around down in there. Um, uh, this one time I saw a doe walk into my scene within 15 feet of where I was painting and gave birth to twin fawns. Wow. It was, it was magic. I mean, I just put my brushes down and just watched this magic for a minute. You know, it was really, I mean, it was like Discovery Channel stuff. I had no camera with me or anything. It was just one of those special... Can fawns stand up immediately? They tried. I mean, it was it was probably a good five or ten minutes before they got on their feet, but they were sort of figuring out this long grass, and they were clearly just so awkward and, you know, but beautiful um, and... Uh, yeah, it, it was it was really neat. They were, you know, the moms licking them and stuff, and they were sort of just taking their first breaths. Um, that was pretty magic. And um, you know, I've seen bear out there, elk, um, tons of you know all the other little varmints and stuff running around. I love the high country for the marmots and the um, the mountain goats. You'll see mountain goats. They're very inquisitive and and um, you know mostly peaceful you you hear every once in a while someone getting gored by a pissed off mountain goat but i i gotta think that that is super rare yeah um because they're just very curious and and also you know i'm not out there um 
making big, fast, aggressive movements or anything. I have a silent easel that I've developed that's super lightweight for, for getting into places like that. And, um, all the accoutrements to the easel is all very, very quiet. So you might stomp into the scene and sort of disrupt it for five or 10 minutes while you get set up and start painting. But then you're there for two hours, sometimes, sometimes three hours. And that whole nature just comes back. I mean, you can hear everything. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be just like being in a stand where you just, you, you can just feel the whole nature come back and you're ever, you're just a part of it at that point. It's really cool. I love it. Dude, we've been going for an hour. Any, any final words of wisdom, um, for new painters out there? I say just get outside, man. Just get outside. It's it's going to be a struggle at first. You know, get yourself an easel that is easy. Hopefully it's one of mine. Um, you can check that out at prolificpainter.com. But, it's, um, but check out the different easels available and get yourself something light, easy, durable, something that you can take. You can just shove it in your suitcase when you go traveling. You know, something that's real easy to set up and take down. You don't have to think too much about that stuff. And then, you know, you just you just paint your your beautiful life that you're living. You know, it could be, you know, um, someone in a bar. It could be, um, you know, a farmer's market. Go set up your easel, you know, or it could be a backpacking trip through the Grand Canyon. You know, just, um, just get outside and um, take a stab at that visual representation of what you're doing. Um, when you're painting from life like that, it's a natural sort of self-correcting mechanism of trying to capture what you're seeing. And the more you do that, the better you're going to get at it. Um, and, um, pretty soon, you know, you can start to, at the very least, have all your Christmas and birthday presents wrapped up (laughs) and then, um, and then hopefully, um, you know, soon, soon after that, you can, you know, start to charge a little money for these things, you know, don't let your ego get involved with it and just have fun. And, um, you know, you're, you're going to have to give them away at first cause they're just, you know, they're just not going to be that strong of paintings. Um, but a- after a while, your visual, uh, um, literacy gets better your visual language literacy and, and also your, the sophistication of your, um, artist voice gets, um, gets better and, uh, and you can lay on the charm with brushwork and edge work and poetry, you know, visual poetry of all kinds. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's quite a lifestyle, my friend. Hell yeah. Well, this is inspiring. I'm going to get out there and I'm definitely going to take my, um, my little sketch box out with me hunting. That's a great idea. Cheers, man. Yeah, I think you really like it. Um, it's just a succinct little kit, you know, with all the bare essentials. Uh, and is prolificpainter.com the best place for people to get in touch with you? Um, it's a good way to check out my products that I sell for painting on location. And then um, joshuabean.com is a place where you can kind of leapfrog off into all the other websites, my YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Instagram's just at joshuabean, and it's Bean with two E's instead of B-E-A-N, it's B-E-E-N. And um, and I post almost every day, and I usually time-lapse videos um, of me painting, so it's cool to see both the painting unfold 
And also the shadows in the background kind of magically cruise across the land. So those time lapses are usually pretty fun. Um, and then I, um, usually have a few words and write down some thoughts and stuff about the painting excursion or, you know, what kind of visual language I was thinking about that day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a quite a little fun project, man, but one I really love. Congratulations on leading a life with so much heart. Hey, I appreciate it, Kyle. You too, my friend. This is quite an amazing thing you've created for yourself. I love podcasts. They're so fun. <laughs> I love listening They're to so them. They're so fun. God, yeah, I mean. Everyone else who's out there, we all love podcasts. It's the best shit ever. It's, it's, it's so awesome. good. It's just so fun. It's yeah. a great medium, man. Oh, man. Yeah, it's the best. Right on. Thank you so much. Oh, what a pleasure, man. That's the show, everybody. I'm going to finish this podcast with a song called Neighbor's Jam by Village of Spaces. They listened to this podcast. They sent me some music. I liked it. And uh, now I'm going to play it for you. And if you dig their music and you want to listen to more of it, you can just click the link in the description below and it will take you to their band page. And if you're part of a band yourself, uh, or if you're just a solo musician up there on the top of a mountain singing to the moon, uh, you can email your music to info at kyle.surf and uh, would love to play it. Maybe turn some new people onto your tunes. Also, info, uh, Kyle, info at kyle.surf is where you can send the voice memos. Just let me know who you are, where you're listening from. If you have a question for me, um, just record it on your phone in the voice memos app and email it to info at kyle.surf. Keep it under a minute, and I would love to play it. Kyle.surf is also where you can sign up for the newsletter, uh, or just click the link in the description below. If you want to get an email from me once a week um, with the newest podcasts as well as the short stories that I write and post on my website, just click the link below and sign up for the newsletter. We also have the box of goodies. Don't forget about that. And if you want to get 10% on any order at Santa Cruz Medicinal CBD or RPM training equipment, type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off. And if you want to volunteer with a worthy cause, you can head over to the NellNewmanFoundation.org and get involved. All of those links are in the description below. That's it for now. As always, get out in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to. Give high fives, give compliments, and uh, read a book because it'll make your day better. Have a great week, guys. See ya.
sweet, sweet change.